morning, everybody. Doesn't look like we have any treehouse folks, so we don't need to dismiss the treehouse leaders. But I'm glad you're here with us under this beautiful tree. <clears throat> so the school is being used for a polling site, hence us being out here <clears throat> in a familiar place. If you didn't know, we were under this tree for uh, several months um, earlier this year as we transitioned from one place to the next to the next to eventually get back inside. Um, <clears throat> but I think it serves as a reminder for us that it doesn't really matter where we are gathered. Um, God is, is there. Right? We don't need a building. We don't need a collection of things. Um, in fact, I'd argue that God is, sometimes works all the more where there are fewer things competing for our attention. Right? Um, granted, there are things competing for our attention, distractions right now. There's people playing softball. I know you're going to wander over there with your eyes a little bit. There's artillery happening in the background, planes flying over. <clears throat> You know, this has been an interesting season for us as a church, those of you that have kind of walked through this time with us and, you know, we've been trying to adjust <clears throat> to life back inside after 15 months. And so when we kicked into this new season of being back inside, <clears throat> sorry, we shared with the ministry leaders, we told them, listen, my friends, don't give too much of your time and attention in the labor of ministry. That is the scheduling, the coordinating, all the things that go into making ministry work. Now, is it important to do things with excellence? Absolutely, right? But it can become about the labor of ministry if we're not careful, right? Yeah, it can. Now, this doesn't really tie into the message, and you're like, where are you going with this? But it just it got me thinking as we gathered here in this time with fewer areas to set up, fewer areas to coordinate and to monitor, I felt led to share this important truth with us as a body of believers. God is more interested in the gathered church for the sake of His people, not the gathering itself. So many times as believers and, and leaders, we fall into the trap of putting effort into this for the sake of this, rather than the assembling of God's people for the sake of what He wants for us. We're a smaller church, right? So we have fewer people to, to help shoulder that load. And that's fine. That's great. I love the intimacy that we have in our body. So it may be, though, that sometimes things are less polished than you'd like them to be. And in the coming weeks and months and years, however God wants to do it, there may be times where we forego certain ministry things because we'd rather skip a week than burn people out. Right? I mean, if you've been in ministry at all, serving, this is probably, hopefully, ringing true for you. Um, this is not a plea for more volunteers. <laughs> um, of course, if you're calling Pillar home, you should serve in some way. But it's a reminder that our desire is not to prioritize the labor of ministry, but ministry itself. Loving people. Serving them. Loving God in both how we serve Him and how we support and love those that serve. Amen? Okay. Like I said, it had really little to do with the message today, but just felt appropriate since we're outside again. And we can just kind of turn our attention to why we're gathering. But with that, let's go ahead and uh, 
Grab your Bible, your digital bulletin. We're going to be in John 18. Flip over to John 18, if you would. Continuing in our journey through John's Gospel account. So we're going to look at the first 12 verses of John chapter 18, so you can follow along as I read out loud. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden, which he had, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. That servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Lord, your word is powerful and effective. Lord, it's there for rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. And, and, and Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would use this word. Got to increase our appreciation for you to deepen our commitment to loving you and loving others, to equipping us for the work of the ministry. Your word is so multifaceted and, and so deep, but it's, it's hope and it's life and it's truth. So speak through me this morning, I pray. Have our hearts to receive all that you have for us through these verses, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since we're outside, we're still going to do our Q&A. So there's a, a number in the digital bulletin. Again, if you go to PillarOceanside.com on your mobile device, there's the three little horizontal bars. You can click that and get to the digital bulletin. There's a number there. If you have a question, text it in, and we'll come up at the end of service and answer those questions as best we can. But before we dive in, there's two main takeaways. I want to kind of give you the upfront, like, hey, here's, here's what we want to take away from the text. Two things. One is that... The hand of the Lord is always at work, even when the circumstances seem otherwise. That's number one. The hand of the Lord is always at work. Even if what you see around you is like, the Lord is not involved in this, it's falling apart around us. Wrong. (laughs) Regardless of circumstances, the Lord is at work. And number two, we must be prepared to do the will of God, even when it will cost us greatly. We must be prepared, willing, 
to do the will of God, even when it will cost us greatly. All right, so those two things, keep those in mind as we're walking through the text. Sound good? All right, great. We've got a new scene unfolding. If you've been with us, you know that the last several chapters have been a part of something we've called, well, scholars have called, the farewell discourse. This has been Jesus' time with his disciples. He's been walking through um, sort of his last time with them, and, and, and now we're leading into the climax of the fourth gospel. That's the, the very reason that Jesus came to this earth is now in front of us, right? So the final chapters of John, probably a, a very familiar to a lot of you. Like you, you understand the arrest and the crucifixion and the resurrection. Like these are very, very familiar things. And my encouragement to all of us is that we would not go into autopilot. We go, yeah, I know this. Let's move on. <laughs> but for your desire to be to have a personal interaction with the Word of God this morning, you personally engage with the Word of God, that you would have a personal interaction with the Word of God that compels you to action. So let that be your desire this morning, okay? Okay? Amen. Okay, I'm just making sure you're with me. You seem a little dead this morning. We're outside, it's beautiful. Come on, guys. It's, it's lovely. All right, here we go. What Jewish festival is taking place right now in this time? At the time that we're in. It's Passover, right? Hundreds, thousands of Jews from all over the land are descending on Jerusalem. It's crazy busy, right? There's people everywhere. And so Jesus, wanting to get his disciples away, they leave the city, right? They go east across this brook, river, stream, creek, whatever you want to call it, and they're going somewhere. Where are they going? They're going to a nearby garden. Now, you may not think so, but I could spend the next hour talking about this one verse alone. Because there are some things being implied and some background here that that is just will blow your mind. And I'm not going to do that for a number of reasons. But the depth of what's happening here is so profound, and yet it's so easy just to move past it. Yeah, Jesus left the city, went across this lake, this, or this river, the Kidron, and now he's going to a garden. Great. Just sounds like some, some narrative describing what's happening. And in a sense, it is, but there's a lot more going on. And I'll get to that. I'm trying to set up the scene like John does. He spends three verses kind of just setting it up for us. So Jesus, his disciples, they're outside of the city. They're making their way to a garden. A quiet place that he could gather, that they had gathered many times before, right? So Judas, then, knowing where they would be, procures for himself, I love that, he procures for himself a band of soldiers and religious leaders. They came with torches and weapons. This was the arresting party for Jesus, right? This is the ones that were going to arrest him. Now, is that a curiosity? Anybody know what a, a band of soldiers or a contingent or detachment consisted of that time? Number of folks that we're talking about here. How many? How many is in a band or a contingent or detachment of Roman soldiers? Okay, I got a couple, a couple answers there. A couple actually are pretty, pretty close in the ballpark. Ballpark. 
So depending, you know, it can vary from place to place, but anywhere from two to six hundred. That's that's what we're talking about here. That's that's the, the the range of folks that we're talking about here. Have you ever thought about that? Like, do you think like the betrayal of Jesus? There's a couple of people with some torches coming up in the middle of the night trying to just get him. We're talking a massive amount of people, and who are they coming with besides Judas? Who are the Roman soldiers coming with? The Pharisees, the religious leaders. Now, did these two people get along? Not in the slightest. (laughs) And yet, when it comes to Jesus, they're willing to go past all of their differences in order to take him down. Interesting, right? And so here they come to this garden. Does John tell us what garden it is? He does not. The other gospel writers do. And so we know it as the garden of what? Gethsemane. Good. I like it. So that's the scene that John outlines for us. Takes three verses, he kind of gives us the lay of the land. Again, we're probably familiar with that. But before we move into the text further, there's something very worth our time investigating. And, you know, as we've been walking through John, we've found some very profound biblical themes that echo throughout the Gospel of John. But this one, I think, is really significant. I'm just going to spend a little bit of time here. And in order for us to really grasp the depth of it, we got to go all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to Genesis chapter 2. You with me in your mind? Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve. Where does the biblical narrative of Adam and Eve begin? In the garden, right. We know from our previous studies in Genesis that this is the place where man failed. Right? Sinned against God and brought death into a perfect world. We see that in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. So what we have taking place here in John chapter 18 is actually an undoing of the events that took place in the Garden of Eden. Both gardens saw the production of life and death. But the second reversed the first. Here's what I mean by that. The first garden, that is Eden, was the place where death was born out of life. There was life, there was perfection in the garden of Eden, and death came out of that as man sinned against God. The second garden, Gethsemane, was the place where life was born out of death. Right? This is what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 5. He said, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, Jesus, or the second Adam, the many will be made righteous. Jesus made a way for lost sinners like you and me to be forgiven and saved and redeemed. And in this garden is where Jesus began that process. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus, knowing all that would take place, he knew everything that was about to unfold. And in verse 11 he said, Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? In other words, I know what I'm going to do. I know what is going to happen, and I will do it. You see, Adam failed. Jesus does not fail. 
So there's that whole garden thing happening. And you can go even further with the with the illustration to Revelation, the end of Revelation, where there's another garden that they talk about. I'm not going to go there. I'm just giving you a lot to hopefully dig into. Here's another one that you can dig into on your own. Um, looking at the, the history of the Kidron Valley. So here is where King David crossed the very same brook stream as he was being betrayed by his own son and chased away. Soon after that, King David's son, his betrayer, would be riding along and actually get his head caught on a tree and would be hung in a tree. Jesus' betrayer, Judas, as we'll read, how does he meet his end? He hung from a tree. Isn't it interesting how all of Scripture ties together? If you want to read about that, go to 2 Samuel 15 through 18. And you can read that story of King David and his son. Okay, one more thing, and I promise I'll leave this alone. I told you I could spend an hour on it. Who was intimately involved in the Garden of Eden, assisting in the betrayal of Adam? Satan, right? We've got the serpent and all these things. As we've studied in previous chapters, who was intimately involved in Judas betraying Jesus? I'm telling you, man, it's deep. And that's just the first verse. So there's some things for you to dig into as we go. But we're moving on. Okay. Next, we've got this engagement, this interaction with Jesus and the people that are coming to him. Jesus, as we read, knowing all things, everything that's about to happen to him, he actually approaches the people that are coming to arrest him. Does he run and flee and hide? No. He approaches them. Whom do you seek? It's almost as if the one they're coming to arrest is in the position of authority. Like he's running the show. He's driving the conversation forward. And they ask him some questions. Well, one, really. He asks, who are you after? And his answer to them in verse 5, I am he. They're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. Does anything sound familiar about the terminology there? The I am, right? So we've walked through the I am statements already. This is what scholars call an informal I am statement. It's not one of the seven that we've been looking at. But even the casual reader can see there is something very much implied in Jesus' response, in the words that he's choosing. And doesn't it have its desired effect? Right Here is the creator of the universe standing before these people that are about to arrest him. He says, I am he. That term carries a lot of weight and significance and power. And what is the response of the people upon hearing that in verse 6? They draw back and what? Fall to the ground. What? The tone of the scene, the writing here, depicts an act of fear and reverence. It's not that they were kind of stumbling away and they happened to fall down. There's something happening here. Can you imagine seeing this unfold? Hundreds of people coming to arrest him. And he says, I am he. Boom, they're on the ground. That doesn't really make sense from a human perspective, does it? Again, this group of people that hate Jesus and are, are, are set on seeing his life end. 
they have this experience. As one writer puts it, he says, hundreds came to take his life and they could make no claim on him. They are hopelessly outnumbered by one. (laughs) I love that. That's exactly what's happening here. And then in verse 7, he repeats himself in asking, who is it that you came for? And at first, it's kind of strange. Like, Jesus, you just said that. Like, they already answered your question. What, what's going on here? But to me and to some other, some other people that have read through this, it almost seems like Jesus is giving them a little bit of space to kind of recover from what just happened. They're on the ground. They're not really sure what's going on. And Jesus is like, uh, who, who did you guys come for again? It's like, let me give you a moment to collect yourselves after this very strange and powerful experience that Jesus is clearly in control of, and he continues to direct the conversation. You see, Jesus has never been in more control than at his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion because his hour had come and not theirs. Jesus is in control. I am he, repeats his answer. But he asks him this time. So if you're seeking me, then let the rest of these guys go. You're not here for them. You're here for me. So let them go. John gives us a little bit more background on that, that it was to, to, to fulfill a prophecy that had taken place. It, it, it was to fulfill something that actually Jesus had, had, himself had said. If you just go back a chapter into John 17, in verse 12, Jesus is explaining the very scene before it happens. He says, while I was with them, this is John 17:12. while I was with them, the disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, which is who? Judas. So he said, all of them will be preserved. And here in the garden, as they could have easily been overpowered by this massive group of people, Jesus says, no, you're here from me. Let them go. So he holds up his end of the bargain and said, I will not let one of them be harmed. The beauty of this is that those who belong to Jesus are set apart, protected, cared for, spared in some cases, and sustained through all of life's circumstances. Now, it may not seem like it at the time. I mean, look at what's going on with what's about to happen to the disciples. Is it going to be an easy road for them? No. Their world is about to come crashing down. They're going to do things that they never thought that they would do. And yet, they remain in the palm of the Lord through it all. Right? If you're a follower of Jesus here today, the same is true for you. And that was the first of the two points that I wanted to give you leading into this, is that regardless of the circumstances around you, God's hand is at work. It certainly didn't seem like it here, and yet we know we have the advantage of looking back on it to see very clearly God's illustrated work happening into fruition. It's no different. Does God change? Is he different now than he was then? No. Friends, I know some of you are in some very challenging, difficult, awkward, painful situations right now. 
Take heart, the Lord is in control. He is in control. It's tough sometimes. I get it. It's really difficult to see the hand of God working sometimes. Even for those who walked with him. I mean, check out Peter's response to Jesus' rest, right? You gotta love Peter. He, he just he pulls out a sword, which would probably have been like a really short sword or like a a knife. And what does he do? Bam! Cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. Bold move, Peter. Right? We'll see how that plays out for you. But you gotta wonder: Is Peter like just a really good swordsman, or is he just terrible? Like, was he aiming for the ear, or was he aiming for something else and he just happened to hit the ear? And we kind of like, what, what exactly is going on here? I mean, the ear? <laughs> Why the ear? Believe it or not, there are actually some strange theories on why people think that it was absolutely intentional that he went for the ear. Now, I'm not going to go into it. Come on, come I'm not on. going into it. If you want to, come talk to me afterwards. I'll lay it on you. It's actually pretty interesting. Nope, not going to do it. Okay, I'll give you a little teaser. I'll give you a little teaser. High priests had to be... Perfect. Yes, they had to be perfect. And for them to have any kind of deformity at all would disqualify them for service. Now, a high priest's servant is not the high priest himself, so there's some kind of wiggle room there, but it certainly would have caused some, some doubt or hesitation for this guy, okay, that's enough of it. You, you, you pushed enough. You got, you got, you got, yeah. Feel better. Thank you, thank you. So if you read Luke's gospel account, we actually know that Jesus did something in response to Peter's action. What did, what did Jesus do? He healed the man. Healed the high priest servant before they chained him up and took him away. Another example of Jesus' mercy and grace. But Peter's tenacity and passion with which he lived his life. Man, if you're watching The Chosen with us at all, you're going to see this, this start to come to the surface even more so. Like, Peter's just a real dude. He's just a raw guy. And and not to uh, spoil it, because I'm sure none of you know what's about to happen. <clears throat> Peter's life is about to just hit rock bottom. Next week, well, next week in our text, it's already happened, you know. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be bad. <laughs> it's going to be really bad for Peter. And, and Jesus' final words are actually addressed to Peter. And it's, it's the heart of our passage. He looks at him and says, Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? Nobody there to arrest Jesus, no religious leader, no Roman soldier, nobody could have assigned this to Jesus. Only the Father can direct the Son. Nobody was in control of that. And so what we see is a willingness to serve God no matter the cost. That's what Jesus shows us here. To drink the cup is simply to do the will of the Father and not our own. That's what we're looking at here. Let me read to you one scholar's writing on this to sort of sum this up. Christ serves as an example for us. 
For we too should expect to receive from the Father, through the Son, our own cup to drink. Even if for a very different end, we too must be prepared and willing to drink the cup assigned to us by God. To endure the cross that is our burden and our calling. Christ has set an example for the church, exhorting us to understand that the good life is not to be contrasted with dying or suffering and to believe that the Father's cup, even if full of real suffering, is the most satisfying drink available. Because it is. To be in the will of God and do what He has called me to do is the only place I want to be. How about you? Because being outside of the will of God is the most dangerous place for you and for the reputation of Jesus. It's not a place you want to be. Now, could that place be more attractive outside of the will of God? Could it seem more comfortable and more pleasurable? Absolutely. Overwhelmingly in some cases, like, I want to go over there. This road looks pretty hard. That one looks pretty comfortable. This is the will of God. This isn't. We're all faced with those decisions, whether we know it or not. So just as our Savior did some 2,000 years ago, let each of us embrace the will of God and drink the cup with gladness and joy and with hope. Which is the second point that I offered you up front. We must be prepared to do the will of God, to drink the cup, regardless of the cost. Now, if you're wondering what the will of God is for you and for your life, then I, I highly encourage you to do some reading. I mentioned a while back, it was in a sermon, I can't remember exactly when, but so much of the will of God for his people is already outlined in the scriptures for us. We don't have to do a lot of guesswork. You can flip to your, the back of your Bible if you have a concordance. You don't have to do it now, but you can flip there, look under W for the word will, and see all the places that the will of God is talked about in the Bible, and you can start seeing, oh, that's the will of God, that's the will of God, that's the will of God. I don't need special enlightenment about what the will of God is for me in a lot of ways. And a lot of those ways are challenging. Love your enemies and pray for the people who persecute you? That sounds awful. But it's what we're called to do. Love our neighbors as ourselves. Think others highly than ourselves. Like these things are difficult and challenging. But is it what the Lord wants us to do? Is it what he's told us to do? Yes, absolutely. That's a place to start for the will of God. But each one of you here is uniquely gifted. And there are certain things that are unique to you to carry out where you live, where you work, the people that are around you, that fall in line with the will of God for your life, that are unique to you. So if you're not sure what that is or what that looks like, what do you think you ought to do? Pray. Pray the Lord. Seek. What is the promise? Seek and you will what? Are you seeking? Ask. 
Lord, what is it that you have for me right now, in this place, in this moment? What is your will for me now? On top of everything else that we already know that we ought to be doing, is there something else right now that you would have me to do? Pray, seek, ask. And again, just to wrap this up, no matter what's going on around us, trust that the hand of the Lord is at work. And bring other people around you to help you walk through difficult times that can remind you, that can point you back to the source of all life and hope. Like, you know, this is difficult, but we're called to bear one another's burdens. That's part of what we're doing and living in community together, my friends, is to be reminded of God's sovereignty and control of all things. And that in concert with that is the idea of our willingness to do the will of God regardless of of the cost. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are good. And, and we, we see from the example of your son in this text what we ought to be doing ourselves, Lord. And I admit, Lord, I struggle. I fail in living this out and walking this out. But in your goodness and your mercy and your love to us, your grace abounds. And when I choose comfort, when I choose my own way and I fall short, your word promised me that as I come back before you, repentant, asking for forgiveness, that you forgive and you cleanse of all unrighteousness. Perfection, Lord, is not what you're after for us, but obedience. Help us to walk in obedience. To do it with joy. The people around us, when they come in contact with us, they're coming in contact with you. To have an experience with us is to have an experience with you. Let us be a conduit for those things, Lord. Give us the strength to put one foot in front of the other when it's difficult and life is challenging. Grant us the hope and the faith to continue to be steadfast in our reliance and trust in you. And get the courage, Lord, to do the hard things. And drinking the cup, doing the will of you for our good and for your glory. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.